start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness, what a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joins the lead. An amazing victory for the second time. Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Mark Kelkovecchio was one of the rare breed of PGA Tour players who, once they got into their own golfing zone, made the difficult look easy. Known for attacking the flag in any situation, Kelk holds several of the tour's stats in birdies made in tournaments and would reel off consecutive birdies almost as a matter of fact. With this being Open Championship Week, I had to have Kelk on the podcast to relive his 1989 Open victory at Royal Troon. You will also find some fascinating insights from him about going low, his countless putter stories, and a few lessons in what made his swing work so well. I trust you will enjoy episode 15 of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast with 1989 champion golfer of the year, Mark Kelkovecchia. This week's guest is Mark Kelkovecchia, and it's a perfect week with the Open Championship coming up. And Kelk won the Open in 1989, his very first open championship that i tried to qualify for and actually went and witnessed uh you're one of my favorites kelp because you won the australian open the year before and i liked your your style and your game <laughs> tall royal sydney up and one by six but got to give you a bit of grief for the open seeing you beat two of my aussie mates in the playoff right <clears throat> what's the um recollection of the the final day i guess um the playoff or getting into the playoff and then what eventuated? Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, you know, sometimes you can't remember what you did <clears throat> did yesterday, but uh, I can remember that 32 years ago already. Uh, you know, Wayne, Wayne Grady, Grades was playing great all week. And uh, I, I it never dawned on, my, uh, dawned on me that I could possibly win until – uh, 16, and I knew Greg was already in at 13 under. I think Wayne was 15 under at the time, and I was 11. And I hit it on 16 and two, and two putted for birdie, part 17. And then on 18, I, I drove it right behind the bunker where, where Greg hit it into on the playoff. And that was really the first time I got nervous. I, I, I actually backed off a shot, which I rarely do because I knew I needed to hit it close. And uh, I just took a deep breath and uh, hit it in there about three feet and made birdie. Uh, because I knew I had to birdie the hole to tie Greg at 13 under, but Wayne was still, uh, he was just on the 14th tee at the time and 15 under. And sure enough, he, he bogeyed the two par threes, 14 and 17. And, uh, off we went to a playoff. So it was, uh, you know, it's just one of those weeks for me. I, I, I'd been playing great heading into that week. Uh, I love the golf course, uh, on first sight and, uh, I actually didn't even know it was a four-hole playoff. Uh, I, I asked the RNA guy, I assume we're going to 18. He says, no, we're going to one. And one's the easiest hole in the golf course. And uh, I thought, well, that's kind of a weird hole for a sudden-death playoff. He says, no, we're playing one, two, 17, 18. Uh, I didn't even know it was a four-hole playoff uh, and, until we actually got to the first tee. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was it was an amazing week for sure. And that was the very first uh playoff of that type wasn't it that's obviously why you didn't know first one right 
Uh, I don't know if anybody knew. And, you know, at the start of the week, you're not really making plans for a playoff. You know, you, you just that happens when you get in one, and then you kind of figure out what you what you're going to do from there. But yeah, that was the uh, the very first one, and uh, I was very relieved. It, it it actually took a little bit of pressure off, uh, especially since Greg birdied one again. He he birdied the first six holes uh, on Sunday in regulation, and. Uh, I'd be dang if he didn't birdie one and two again right off the hop in the playoffs. And uh, I luckily made about a 30-footer on two from off the back of the green uh, to only be one down with two to go. And then he uh, he bogeyed 17, I parred. And then, uh, of course, on 18, he, he hit it in that little coffin bunker, I think they call it. And uh, in regulation, I hit it just five yards short of it. And it was a really good drive, but it wasn't my all-time best. And Greg was a little bit longer than me at that time. And uh, that's why in the playoff, I hit some sort of really weak slice out there to the right because I was afraid of killing one right in that bunker. And, uh, and sure enough, then I caught a good lie and hit a five iron from 201. It looked like it was like two feet from the hole, but it was still seven feet short. But it really forced Greg into trying something that, uh, you know, heroic to try to get it up by the front of the green. And then, of course, he hit it in the cross bunker, like 50 yards short of the green, and then hit that one in the clubhouse. And, uh, uh, yeah, the next thing I know, I'm holding the Claret Jug. It was, it was pretty cool. What was the walk like? So, obviously, it's a fascinating walk. for the. I've never done it for anywhere near the lead. <laughs> being there on a Sunday with the open crowd is pretty cool. But at that point, you know, grades was kind of out of it, and you, you knew once Greg was in the clubhouse that it was yours. It was that um you know weight off your shoulder you didn't have to worry about the part or was it just take soaking it in actually I, I was still pretty nervous uh even standing over that seven footer you know I, i've never thought about double hitting a, a putt in my life but it, it actually dawned on me i said whatever you do don't don't double hit this putt and if you watch the putt that i hit uh, i kind of kind of branched Snedeker to it a little bit. I just kind of hit it and kind of recoiled uh, and almost left it short, but it fell on the front edge. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm no mental genius, that's for sure. But uh, even then I, I thought, uh, you know, how can I screw this up uh, instead of, you know, thinking I got it and enjoying the whole thing uh, until it went in. Uh, then I, then I kind of let it, let it, let it all uh, sink in, which was pretty cool. And do you think your demeanor that week was relaxed? Because I heard that you may not have even gone over for that open due to your, your first child being born. There's a chance you may not even go. Right. Uh, yeah, she was due on Sunday, the open. And I, I really didn't want to go because uh, I really, I, I, I in no way didn't want to miss the, the birth of my first child. And uh, Cheryl, my, my first wife, talked said, you know, you just – you got to go. You're playing great. I got really good vibes for you. Blah, blah, blah. She's probably just trying to get rid of me for the week, but, uh, off I went and, uh, sure enough, uh, it, it all worked out good. She was actually a few weeks late with, uh, our, our daughter, Brittany, who was born the Tuesday of the PGA at Kemper Lakes. Uh, and of course, you know, I wasn't going to fly out the next day after my daughter was just born. So I WD from the PGA at Kemper Lakes, which was disappointing. But I hadn't hit a golf shot since I got back to uh, to Phoenix uh, at that time, so it wasn't uh, wasn't really that big a deal. And I heard uh, like a funny quote by you when you won the Open about how they're going to fit your name on the trophy. Is that correct, or was that just a <laughs> guess? Yeah, well, 
I, I was kind of wondering how they're going to scratch that all those letters in there that fast uh, for the uh, for the award ceremony. But sure did enough, they have it uh, on there for the when you yeah they the did party? they yeah. did that, that guy's a master. He can. Uh, I think as soon as I hit my second shot on eighteen, he went to work in, in the playoff. So he he had an extra ten or twelve minutes, I think, and uh, and got it done. But yeah, he's uh, he's pretty awesome at that. So you've uh, you had I believe thirteen. PGA Tour wins and at least 13 or more others. And you're a bit of a repeater, three times at Phoenix and a couple of times at Honda, even one, two up in Canada in different places. But I guess you uh, you liked similar or a course once you got the hang of it? I do. Uh, very true. Uh, I, I definitely am a, a guy that, that gets good vibes when I go to a certain course. Um, and I think a lot of guys are too, you know, it's like Steve Stricker at, at Quad Cities and he had a pretty good uh, event again this week, uh, went in there three times in a row uh, a little while back. So, uh, and, and Bubba Watson at Riviera and, you know, I mean, there you can go on and name countless amount of guys, O'Meara at, at Pebble Beach, five wins in the AT&T. Uh, there's just certain places we get to that uh, you, you just, no matter what kind of shape your game's in, you feel like you're going to play good. Or Tiger Woods and, uh, anywhere. Or Tiger Woods anywhere, right? Firestone, <laughs> you, you name it, yeah. Uh, Torrey Pines, uh, There's you, you can go on and on about him. Uh, but, yeah, he's uh, he's certainly amazing. Do you remember your first win? I think it's a defunct tournament now. It was in Texas somewhere, is that right? Yeah, Abilene, Texas. Uh, I actually started in 1986 uh, for the first time since 81 with zero status for the PGA Tour. Uh, managed the four spot qualify for Doral and Honda, uh, qualified for the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills, shot 65 the last day and 86 to finish 14th, which at that time actually got me in the Masters with, uh, with no tour status, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, Ted May gave me an exemption into Hartford, had a top 10, which got me into Boston, another top 10, which got me into Milwaukee. Another top 10 and then went down to uh, Abilene, Texas. And uh, uh, kind of a funny story there. Uh, we played a practice round on Tuesday with the usual group. I think it was Ken Green, Bill Sander, and Bob Boyd. And I think I had about 21 putts on the front nine. I mean, I, I just all of a sudden com completely lost it with a putter. I said, hold on a minute, guys. I'm going to go buy a putter in the pro shop. Uh, well, I went into the locker room first, and uh, the Titleist rep had a bunch of putters setting out, leaning up against the locker. And I picked the, the biggest, ugliest one I could find, uh, which was at the, that time called the Titleist Dead Center. It was one of those big, giant-headed things, uh, very similar to what Jack won the Masters with. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it weighed about C2. It was the lightest thing you've ever felt in your life. And uh, went out there and shot like 30 in the back nine, made every putt I looked at, and then I ended up winning the tournament with it. So uh, that's that's why I've always been a big fan of changing putters. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I, I did someone similar to that. I, you didn't buy that one, though, did you? But I'm sure you bought putters. Right. I remember I've, I've buying putter three putters. Home. Yeah, I've bought three putters in uh, pro shops that I've actually won tournaments with. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and besides all the wins, you had 27 runner-ups. That's, uh, I don't know if that's a record, but it's got to be pretty high up there. I, I think Greg had uh, 29 or 30. Uh, and and he, he, he put a few of them on me, but I put a few of them on him as well. So, 
you know, and of, of all those seconds, uh, look, you, you're not going to win every time you get a chance to win. Uh, very few people do that. You mentioned Tiger. He's, you know, obviously his win percentage uh, is, is the best in history. But of those 27 seconds, I'd say probably at least half of them. I, I played an unbelievable round on Sunday to, to finish second or tied for second. But probably another five or six of them, you know, I just got flat beat. And probably another five or six of them, you know, I just outright gave away, in my opinion, uh, tournaments that I should have won that I didn't. And, uh, you know, that's going to happen. It, it, you see it every week, you know. And I, I watch – I'm a big fan of golf. I, I watch it on TV, uh, you know, all tours. I watch, you know, the PGA Tour, the Senior Tour, the Ladies Tour, you name it. And uh, you see it every week. You know, guys just can't do what they need to do on the back nine on Sunday and get the win when you really feel like they should. And, and I don't know why I was always so hard on myself when I didn't get the job done when I felt like I should have. But uh, it, it still happens every week. You know, some, sometimes you just feel really good out there. As you know, uh, pretty relaxed, uh, kind of confident in the way things are going to turn out. And other times you just got the worst feeling in your stomach. Uh, no matter what you do, you can't uh, can't get out of your way and hit a good shot. So uh, I don't I don't reckon that'll ever change. Yeah, it's not it's not easy when you are. No, um, it isn't. Winning is very hard. Critics, you know, sitting back watching, talking about people choking and everything. And it's not easy when you're out there. Right. It sure isn't. So you had, um, in the majors, obviously won the Open, came second at the Masters, which we'll probably touch on in a little bit, and fourth in the PGA Championship. But that US Open you mentioned, you came 14th. <laughs> that was your highest US Open finish. What, what was the difference? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was easily. Actually, my two best US Opens were my first two. I think I finished 14th at... Uh, at Shinnecock that year in 86 and in 87, I believe it was at the Olympic club. I finished 17th. And then my next best were a couple of tie for 20th. Uh, I, I read something, I think it was Alexander Shoffley. Uh, the last two U S opens, he basically said he just talked himself out of playing well, uh, just because he, he was a little psyched out or whatever it was, or that he didn't like the course or blah, blah, blah. And I think that's more or less what I did every time I came to a U.S. Open. I, I was just sort of not looking forward to it like I should have been because mainly back in the 80s and 90s, the rough was just ferocious. And I was never that accurate of a driver of the ball. And when I missed the fairway by two inches and had to grab a sandwich to hack it back out in the fairway, uh, that, that didn't set well with me mentally. And because – you know, sometimes the fairways are 25, 27 yards wide. And that, that's a pretty straight drive for me. And when I saw it disappear into the into the rough by a few inches, I was like, oh, boy, here comes another bogey or double. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, uh, never really uh, accepted the, the difficulty of the tournament or, or handled it well. I so wish I would have now as I, as I look back. But, you know, you look – you kind of look back and go, oh, I was kind of a baby. I should have just toughed it out and been a little little mentally stronger. But, uh, you know, I, I watched the U.S. Senior Open this week at Omaha Country Club, and the rough there this week was pretty brutal. And you see, got, you saw guys missing fairways and just trying to get it back out into the fairway. And uh, that, that's a hard thing to uh, accept sometimes. 
Yeah, for sure. Especially when it, like you said, by inches sometimes, and it's yeah, it may as well be a yard, uh, fifty yards. Right. Yeah, you're better off in it over by the gallery. You know, thirty yards offline instead of six inches offline. So, would you say um, sometimes? You know, I, I would say your demeanor off the course is pretty casual. Like you don't get too phased or fussed with anything. On the course, you're a little bit more hot-headed because you wanted to do well or because things frustrated or you weren't performing. Would you say agree with that as a fair call? Absolutely. No doubt. Uh, yeah, I've, I've unfortunately broken uh, way more clubs than, than I'd like to admit and, and we're proud of uh, that I did that. But sometimes I just lost my temper and, and something needed to go. Uh, sometimes it helped me. Sometimes it didn't. Uh, you know, I could usually bounce back pretty fast. Uh, after a disaster or, or, you know, throwing a fit. Um, I do remember some instances that uh, I completely embarrassed myself. Uh, and, of course, now that I'm 61 and I've gotten older, uh, now it's kind of the other way around. Um, I don't really do anything on the course. I just kind of take it because I'm kind of used to not being as good as I was, so to speak. But then it kind of lingers with me a little longer words after. Before, I'd get mad, get it out of the way, and, and I never brought it home with me. As soon as I left the course, I'd grab a beer or something, and, and I'd be done with it. Uh, but as, as I've calmed <laughs> calm down on the course, uh, I, I've, I've carried it with me a little bit uh, back to the hotel sometimes, and sometimes I'm kind of grumpy for a few hours. But, uh, again, uh, I mean, just saying that, you know, I'm 61 now. Obviously, my best days are behind me, but uh, we're so lucky to have that uh, PGA Tour champions to play on and still get our juices flowing and and, and do what we've always done. So it's just, uh, it's just a total blessing. I'm going to run a few of your records by, and you can give us a little idea what, what you like about them the most, or and then maybe at the end what your favorite one is. But obviously, you were you were known to go low in a lot of tournaments or get on hot streaks. Um, right. I think he had the record 32 birdies in a tournament in Phoenix, nine consecutive birdies in Canada one year. How do, how do you, how do you take that? Like people that probably have th two or three birdies in a row and start thinking about it, but how did you <laughs> keep, keep that going? Yeah. That year in Phoenix. Uh, and actually the weather was pretty bad too, but I figured something out on the range on Tuesday and I told my caddy, let's go play like 11 through 16 or whatever. And I birdied five of the six holes I played. And I said, uh, okay, I think I've got it. Uh, then in the Pro-Am, I shot 65 and, and quit trying the entire back nine because I didn't want to shoot too low. Uh, I, I, just, I just found something and I knew I had it. And uh, 20 of those birdies, 20 of those 32 birdies were from inside three feet. Uh, I, I really wasn't making 40 footers every other hole. Uh, you know, I putted great. There's no doubt, but that was easily the best tournament I've ever had in my entire career. Uh, TD green. Uh, I just, uh, a bad shot would be 15 feet from the hole. <clears throat> and now you wonder sometimes when you're out there with a pitching wedge and you can't get it within 30 feet, you know, what the heck, you know, how, how could I hit every single shot right at the flag back then? Uh, but golfers uh professional golfers do that uh they, they they find something they get on a roll and all they're really thinking about is uh is hitting it close and uh the nine, the nine birdies in a row in canada uh you know just sort of happened 
Uh, I can't really explain it, but I, I think the reason I could go low when I did was my short game was so good back then, and I was never afraid to short side myself. So I literally aimed at every single flag uh, on the golf course. And I, and I think, obviously, when you're playing well, uh, you're hitting good shots, and then you're, you know, when you don't hit a good shot, you still have a 15 or 20 footer. Uh, and I uh, was putting great at that time as well. And you could, like you said, you could be attacking and know that your short game was so good it didn't matter where you missed it. Exactly. Uh, you know, a lot of times now you, you get out there and you're like, well, you know, if I miss this left of the green to that back left pen, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> I never really thought that back then. Uh, of course, the pins weren't three from the edges back then. I think they were at least four, maybe even five a lot of times. Uh, the, 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 the whole locations are much closer to the fringes than they used to be. But, you know, I had that, that, that square groove spinny L wedge and I had a flop shot and uh, I could get it up and down from anywhere. And I, that just, that allowed me to, to mentally just play free and just, uh, and be aggressive with my irons. And when I was playing well, it, it, uh, it sure worked out. It sure worked out good. How do you, how do you go with that assumption that, um, you know, you mentioned the square grooves because, there was at a point there when all the square grooves, you know, was the rage and people were humming and ahhing about it and you were kind of the poster boy and getting right. chewed, at, chewed on, I guess, because you were using them and playing so well. But that's going to happen when you're beating everyone's butt. But, you know, I'm sure that didn't sit that great with you. No, it, it bothered me. Uh, you know, a lot of people said that's the only reason that all of a sudden I was playing really good. Uh, but, you know, my, my only defense at that time was, uh, sometimes you'd hit it in the rough and you'd have a, like a tree to go over and you'd love to catch a flyer. Uh, I mean, you couldn't hit a flyer out of anything other than dry Bermuda grass, like in Hawaii at Wailai. I mean, there's, it doesn't matter what kind of groove you got in your club face over there. You're going to hit flyers. Uh, but out of like a juicy, wet green grass, uh, sometimes I was just praying I could hit a flyer because I couldn't hit the green. I swing as hard as I could with an eight iron from 160 yards and it only go 140. So then I'd have to get up and down. So it, it, there were advantages at times when you were in the rough and the pin was tucked over a bunker and you had a, a seven or eight iron and, and you could put spin on it and take it right at the flag and not have to play necessarily in the middle of the green. But there are other times where you couldn't even get to the green when you wanted to, uh, if you caught a flyer. Uh, but, you know, as time went on, uh, actually, uh, two years later, uh, I played all in 90 and half in 91 with Tommy Armour 845s with regular V grooves. And I didn't win in 1990, but I had six seconds. That was one of the years I racked up a bunch of seconds. And I was still playing great with V grooves. So uh, I, I kind of proved my point, I think, to everybody at that time that I was just, uh, I was pretty good back in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, as my old buddy Tim Simpson said, uh, there's, Cop doesn't have any grooves on his putter because uh, I was I was I was making a lot of putts back then. We all want to become better. Now you have the opportunity to learn all about the training drills I use with my amateur players, beginners, and my PGA Tour players that I work with. My second ebook, The 430 Path to Great Golf, is now available. Take an in-depth look at the technique and drills that have helped hundreds of golfers the world over. Train your swing to be more powerful, more consistent, 
and more like you envision your swing to be. The 430 Path to Great Golf, only available in the store at bradleyhughesgolfforum.com and bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Bradley Hughes Golf, it's where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. And what about, yeah, well, you, you know, you obviously said you, you were good. We all know that. 527 cuts made, pretty big number. Yeah, it, it kind of floors me. I'm, I'm narrowing in on a thousand events played between the PGA Tour and the and the Senior Tour, and it's just unbelievable how fast the time's gone by. Uh, you know, to think that that uh, next year at St Andrews uh, will be my last Open. It was supposed to be this year, uh, but the RNA uh, uh, I had back surgery in January. We'll get to that in a minute, but. Uh, the RNA, RNA uh, granted me uh, one more year so I can play next year at St. Andrews, and that'll be my 31st Open. And it just, I, you know, I can't believe I've flown over to the Open 31 times, let alone all the tournaments I played in Spain and Germany and Italy and Ireland and all the other places I played as well. Uh, it's, just, it's just all like one big giant blur. Uh, you know, Japan, Japan. Uh, Australia, I've been to four or five times. Uh, it's just hard to believe I've, I've amassed that many tournaments. Uh, and, and I still feel like a kid. Uh, I, I know I'm 61 and my body doesn't feel like a kid, but but mentally, uh, I still do. So it's, it's been quite a ride. So you're still keen to keep going. And once your back heals and everything, you're going to keep going on the champions and get at it? I am, yeah. And I wasn't so sure at the start of 2020. Uh, I wasn't playing very good right off the hop. Uh, and then in March, the pandemic set in, and all of a sudden we had five months off. Uh, I didn't touch a club for 53 straight days. And you know, I missed it. I was like, I knew right then that I, I, I couldn't retire. And I was thinking about it because, like I said, I wasn't playing very good in the start of 2020. Uh, but then after the pandemic, I said, okay, I know I can't retire. Uh, I've got to tough this out for at least another five or six years. Uh, you know, I've got a place to play. I never have to worry about not getting in tournaments because of my career, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, and then once we started playing again, uh, I, I had my best tournament of the year in, in Branson uh, where Phil Mickelson won his first tournament that he played in and uh, shot 66, 68, 68, I think. So I was really feeling good about everything. Went to Nebraska and, and played at my favorite course in the world, the Sand Hills and uh, Dismal River, the Prairie Club. And sure enough, I, I, we had to do a spit test for Sioux Falls, which was the next tournament. And I tested positive for COVID. So I drove to Sioux Falls, did another test, yeah, positive again. And as it turns out, I got pretty sick. Uh, and that, 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 that took me about a month to get over that. Uh, got back out to playing. I was still kind of weak. And then my back just went into just wicked spasms uh, pretty much nonstop uh, at the end of 2020. And that's when I decided to have uh, have back surgery on January 4th of, uh, of this year. And I haven't, uh, haven't played since. Although I feel really good and I'm getting a lot closer. I can hit short irons. And, uh, you know, hope to play the last uh, six or seven tournaments uh, uh, this year on the, on the senior tour. That'll be good. We'll look forward to it. I like watching some of that stuff because a lot of the guys, as you know, are 
in you know the, all those guys yeah that yeah. I played against so it's fun exactly and we still get I still get to watch some of the old courses we played at too right <laughs> all right so you played four Ryder Cups Kelp which um, obviously you've had uh, winning losing on teams obviously Ryder Cups more team than individual so that doesn't matter so much but what's the joy of defeat and the thrill of victory like now uh, defeats uh, the, the one Ryder Cup that uh, I was on the winning team at Kiowa in 91 I was so shell-shocked after my collapse against Monty I, I, I literally don't even remember what happened after Bernhard missed that putt uh, I don't remember being in the ocean in our blue jackets that picture everybody's seen uh, I, my, I just went mentally blank after that uh, my first Ryder Cup in 87 was at Muirfield Village and we pretty much got uh, slaughtered well not slaughtered we, we kind of made a rally on Sunday but uh, fell a little short but I, I beat Faldo on Sunday in singles uh, and I thought well I'll be I'll be a part of this team again and I think the one that hurt the most was 89 uh, we ended up tying 14 points apiece and five of us lost the last hole uh, for that to happen myself included I, I kind of hit a pop-up hook well not a hook but just a kind of a pop-up in the water against Ronan Rafferty and I lost one down uh Freddie well Christy O'Connor hit an amazing shot but Freddie made a bogey anyway I think he might have had or lost one down I think McCumber lost uh, Ken Green lost and uh, somebody else and it looked like we couldn't possibly lose that Ryder Cup with two holes to go uh, or, or even tie it, which is the same as a loss because they they kept the cup. So that that was the biggest heartbreak. Everybody was bawling their eyes out. It was, it was pretty sad. Uh, and then in uh, 91, like I said, we, we won, but uh, I was kind of in a shell shock state of mind. And then in 02, great to get back on the team. And Sam Torrance did an amazing job as captain of their team. I seriously don't think they cut the greens uh, since Friday morning. The greens were running at about an eight on the stint meter on Sunday. And we left every single putt short and just got blistered on Sunday and ended up losing. So, you know, but that's the captain's priority. If he wants the greens, you know, not cut for four days in a row, that he can do it. And uh, it might have been the time to go in the pro shop there and get one of those big heavy putties. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, I watched the highlights. I couldn't get to the hole. and I played Patrick Harrington, and he was making everything. And, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of sickening. But, you know, it was really cool to be a part of all those. Uh, just knowing that you're, you know, one of the best players in the PGA Tour and, and uh, representing your country is, is, is really quite an honor. Uh, let's run it back to that Masters. I know you finished second, and you probably, you know, in hindsight, were never, never leader really. Where you had a great back nine, and but um, I'm sure after Lyle's tee shot that went into the bunker there, there's pretty good hopes that you may win outright or at least be in a playoff. What were you doing when when that was happening? Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, I, I I knew I was I was right there. And actually made uh, four or five footers on uh, 16 and 17 and then hit the wrong club after a perfect drive on 18 and spun it down the hill and, and just hit an amazing chip up to about a foot and tapped it in, which I was really relieved at. 
And as I was being driven to the uh, Butler cabin, uh, I, I forget who it was, but he told me, one of the masters uh, guys, members, committee guys, told me that Sandy made it from off the back of the green on 16, which is nearly impossible because you got to hit the putt sideways left and let it loop down into the hole. But then he said, uh, right when I got in the Butler cabin, uh, he said, Sandy hit it in the fairway, the first fairway bunker on 18, fairly close to the lip. And I hadn't sat down to look at the TV yet, but I thought to myself, well, okay, uh, that doesn't mean he's going to make a bogey, uh, you know, get ready for a playoff. He'll find a way to make par. Uh, you know, he's Sandy Lyle. He was uh, one of the best in the world at that time. Uh, so I was just bracing up to, to get ready to go down 10 in a, in a playoff. And then he got in there and I saw the lie. It was really clean and, and nobody in the world hit it higher than him at that time. And he picked the seven iron out of there and, and it was straight up in the air and his eyeballs were as, as big as golf balls. And I said, Oh my God, he just hit an amazing shot. And it came down, ran up the hill, ran back down the hill to about 12 feet. And I just said, wow, what a shot. Uh, I, I told everybody in there, I guarantee he makes this and he poured it right in the middle. And, uh, Actually, after that, the press conference, all that other stuff, I, I was I was fine. You know, I said, you know, what are you going to do? I, I got beat by one of the greatest shots in the history of the Masters. This is only my second year here. Uh, I'll, I'll be playing in this tournament at least another 20-some-odd times, and uh, I'll, I'll get a green jacket. Uh, so I just kind of left it at that. And, of course, it never happened. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I did win the Open the next year, which, which eased the pain a little bit. But, yeah. Uh, I, I never think about that except every April. <laughs> <laughs> now every you, April, you know, the last 15 years or, two, or 12 years, that I, I think 08 was the last year I played. I said, boy, it would have been nice to play there the last 10 or 11 years. Uh, so, yeah, then I get mad at Sandy. Uh, but, uh, you know, 51 weeks a year, I don't think about it. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure no one brings it up in April. Either, but no. No. No, it, it was an amazing, amazing shot. Right, so we're going to talk uh, also back to the Australian Open because I mentioned that right at the start. That's my national championship. First time I ever saw your Royal Sydney shot 19 under and I won, I think he won by six. Maybe grades was up in that also. But, yeah, I think Sandy Lyle was too. Uh, I, I think I played with, yeah, and grades was too. I, I think I played with Sandy on Sunday and I had such a big lead. His wife, Yolanda, was leaning up against a tree in the shade reading a book. She wasn't even watching. She says, oh, it's, you're killing him. <laughs> what's, there to, what's there to watch? So I thought that was kind of funny. But uh, uh, another situation where uh, as soon as I saw the course, I loved it. Um, and, and my short game was insane that week. I think I chipped in five times uh, for the week. And, you know, when that happens, uh, and some of them were, a couple of them were, you wouldn't even dream about getting up and down when I hold it. Uh, it was just one of those weeks where uh, my short game was insane and, then, and I made a bunch of putts. But, yeah, that's that's still one of my favorite memories. Uh, you know, my three biggest wins, obviously, were the, were the Open, uh, the Canadian Open and the Australian Open. Were, uh, I tell everybody those are my three biggest wins. And, um, obviously, you know, your swing and your game was built around, you know, a bit of a fade, wasn't it? You, you would call it was yeah. a not-go-left shot. How did, how did you go on... 
holes it, you know, a little bit tighter up the left side, or if you did have to draw and you had that in your bag, obviously being the caliber you were, but was that harder or how did you produce those? I never tried to draw my driver ever. Uh, it was a seven degree, you know, back then the old metal wood that said metal wood across the top of it, uh, with a pretty stiff titanium shaft. And, uh, you know, if you tried to hit a hook with that thing, you just hit a diving smother that wouldn't fly 150 yards. Uh, so when I did have to kind of hook it around a corner or uh, even, you know, a left to right wind or whatever, uh, I, 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 I could have hooked my three would just fine. Yeah. Uh, but just by moving it back in my stance a little bit, pulling a little bit inside, swinging inside to out. Uh, and I, I hit it nearly as far as I hit my driver anyway when I did that. So. Uh, that was that was my 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 plan when it came to holes that I had to uh, kind of curve it around the corner right to left. I asked that because that's quite a recurring theme with good players. You know, they they like to fade their driver or that's a go to shot. And most of them just draw a three would pretty naturally. You might have had to fight for the draw a little bit more than some, but it tends to want to go right to left. And is that you think that's loft club design why does that happen why, why is that 100 percent uh the extra loft enables you to do that because you can move it back in your stance a little bit which helps uh and just naturally swing in a little bit uh inside on your back swing to and you know full release out to one o'clock uh and you can hit a nice draw because you have that extra loft uh that you can uh, that you can use um you know, back in the, when I was a kid in the 70s and, and early 80s, everybody hooked it because metal, words, metal woods weren't invented yet. So you had to hit a hook to, to hit it anywhere. So I could always hook it. Uh, you know, I, I would play with guys and I'd hit this beautiful, you know, iron shot into a, a back left pin. I'd hit about a nice 15, 20 foot draw on there. And I was like, oh, my God, Cup, was that a hook? I said, yeah, I can I can hook it with the best of them. Uh, I just don't do it with my driver uh, because I, I pretty much figured out how to eliminate the left half of the golf course. And uh, that's when I went to work with Peter Costas in 1984. And we got that driver set up that just did, did not go left. Uh, I mean, I could, I could seriously take it right up a, 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 a lake line and aim it right there in the edge of the water and, and not worry about hitting in the water. It was going to be a fade. Uh, so when you can do that with your driver, it's, it's a huge, huge bonus. And you did some of that with the loft and the shaft, like less loft and stiffer shaft? Or? Less loft and stiffer shaft. I just, I just played it up in my stance to get it in the air. Uh, I made sure the club didn't get behind me. So on my backswing, uh, it was almost like I cupped my wrist a little bit, got the club head outside of my hands, and then just cleared my hips and let it go. And I could release as hard as I wanted to and uh, wouldn't hit it left uh, with that driver set up. I've got to uh, ask you this too. This is something that uh, I've basically did all my life growing up, probably because I copied Greg Norman, but you had the little bit of the right foot drop slide back as well. How, do you know why that happened? Was that a, a mechanism to not hit it left or just good footwork or lower body? How do, how do you think that came about? I, I think it just happened that... Uh, with, with the driver set up, learning uh, to clear my left hips as hard as I could. Uh, and, and in doing that, my right foot just kind of slid back. Uh, obviously, Greg, uh, same thing. You know, he was obviously very strong with his legs and his lower body. 
and cleared really fast, and his foot slid back a little. Scotty Scheffler now yeah, he, uh, yeah. does uh, does that as well. Very much. Um, I still think about it on the range. Sometimes I'll, I'll do it as a drill. Uh, and, and every time I do it, I hit a really good shot. Uh, but I, I think as I've gotten older, obviously I'm not as near as fast as I used to be. So there's not as much torque, uh, in, in my, my hips and my, my back and my lower body. So my foot just kind of stays there or I just come up my toe, like Justin Thomas a little bit, uh, Actually, I think when I hit it my best, I, I keep my right heel down uh, longer than when I'm not hitting it good. And generally, that's because my back feels good uh, and, I'm, and I'm fairly limber. When, when your back's tight, uh, for me, it's just uh, it's hard to keep flexing my right knee and uh, my, my right heel just comes up off the ground. All right, let's uh, go to the short game side of things. We know you're awesome with the wedge and all that. Um, what about the putting? You used the claw grip. Were you one of the first to do that? I was the second one, yeah. Actually, uh, Chris DeMarco was the first, uh, and he learned that grip from Skip Kendall, who never used it, but Skip invented it. And I was it was this 2001. I was on the putting green at the Players' Championship 15 minutes before my tee time. And DeMarco's all the way over on the other side of the putting green. And I'm looking at his grip and I, and I know what it is. And he's, he's four degrees upright with his putter. So he just kind of puts his right hand on it, looks at the hole, then puts his left hand on it and then just takes his right hand off and just grabs it like he's grabbing a, a pipe or a baseball bat. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. So I, I looked at that and I'm like, and he was obviously a great putter, uh, nearly won three majors. Uh, a lot of tournaments, a lot of money. He's still a great putter. So that, in the in the 10 minutes I had before my tee time, I all of a sudden just adjusted it and turned it around and put my middle finger in the side of the shaft and my other kind of fingers around it. And I hit like five or six putts that way and hit them pretty good, made, made three or four of them, went to the first hole. And I got up in the first green and I had about a 10 footer for par. And I'm like, Oh my God, what, I mean, what am I going to do? Am I going to cross hand it? Am I going to try this claw? Uh, I, I was just putting terrible. So I, I went with this weird looking claw grip and I made it right in the middle. Next hole made another 10 footer for birdie. And the next three, I made it about a 15 footer for par. I'm like, all right, I guess I got a new grip. <laughs> and, uh, and since then I've, I've, I've used it exclusively, but, Sometimes I move my, my hand more under it. Sometimes I put it more on top, like uh, O'Meara has what he kind of calls the saw. Uh, you know, sometimes I went with the one finger on the shaft, like Tommy Fleetwood, the, the pencil or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I, I've moved my right hand around quite a bit over the years, but still it's essentially the same thing where it's, it's, it's basically a 90% left-handed stroke, and the, and the right hand is just uh, going along for the ride. Uh, keeping the club face square. That's what I was going to ask you, if it felt like the left hand dominated or that just the right hand pushed. Yeah, that's good. When I, when I won the, the pods in, in 07, my last tour win, I putted horrendous uh, the first day. I had 36 putts, but I hit 16 greens, so I knew I was hitting it good. Uh, and then uh, decided to put in a putter that I bought at Edwin Watch the Sunday before I went, went up to Tampa. And on the potting green on Friday, and I already had Brenda packing up the truck. I said, you know, as soon as we're done, we're out of here, thinking I was going to miss a cut because I shot 75 the first day. On the potting green, I said, okay, just just 
just barely put the right hand on the club and, and entirely just pull with your left hand. Well, 67, 62, 70 later, uh, I ended up winning the pot. So just, just the only thought I had on the putting green was pulling with my left hand and uh, made everything. Wait, I still wait, think of that. I still think of that at times, but it, of course it doesn't work like it did, did back then. But well, golfers are a little crazy, aren't we? We'll try. Oh, yeah. we're, we're all nuts. There's no question. So I'm going to go way back now. Um, you obviously you grew up in Nebraska, which we'll touch on also in a minute. But you moved to Florida and you play with Jack Nicholas when you were 14 years old. So that's how cool is that? And what what are your memories of that? Right. Uh, grew up in a town of 920 people in northeast Nebraska, a little town called Laurel. And we had a little nine-hole course, which I learned how to hit it on. And I actually moved to to Florida for my father's health reasons. He had multiple sclerosis and uh, slipped on the ice in the winter of 72 and broke his arm and said, that's it, we're moving to Florida. So off he went and uh, found us a house to join North Palm Beach Country Club, which is literally two miles from Lost Tree Village where, uh, where the Nicholases live. And uh, I, I probably met Jackie uh, Nicholas Jr. the second or third week I was there in a, in a Palm Beach County Junior Golf Association, and we became friends instantly. Played junior golf against each other, high school golf for four years against each other. And uh, anyway, uh, of course, uh, we're playing out at Lost Tree. We're playing the uh, Benjamin team in a match, which was a treat in itself, playing Lost Tree when you're in, in eighth grade or ninth grade, rather. And uh, Mr. Nicholas came out to watch us. And I was like, oh, my God, Jack Nicholas is watching me play golf. And of course, I somehow played amazing. I think I shot like 34 or something and, and smoked Jackie. And he came up to me and said, you know, Mark, you're you're a heck of a young player, blah, blah, blah. And uh, again, Jackie and I were friends. And uh, later on that summer, uh, he invited me out to play with him and Jackie and Gary. Maybe Michael. I'm not sure. Maybe Steve. It was one of the other Nicholas brothers. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was 14 years old and got to play around the golf with Jack Nicholas. So uh, amazing from just eight months prior to that, I was uh, in a small town in Nebraska. And uh, uh, next thing you know, I'm playing golf with Jack Nicholas. So, what year is that? Like early 70s when he's winning the Masters? In the 1974, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right in his prime. And uh, actually, the first tournament that I went to see was the uh, my older brother, who was 11 years older than me. Uh, once we got down to Florida uh, that March, before I'd met, uh, Mr. Nicholas uh, took me down to the Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic, uh, which I think he birdied the last five holes on that Sunday to, to edge Greer Jones by a shot. And uh, when I when I saw that uh, that tournament, and we we went down Saturday and Sunday, I, I said right then and there, this is what I'm going to do for a living. Uh, and there was just no looking back after that. I said, there's no way I'm not going to be a professional golfer. And uh, somehow all that came true. You got to learn from the best too at a young age. It's pretty awesome. I sure did, yeah. What about uh, just a couple more for you, Kelp? We've got, I, I read this somewhere. I don't know how true this is, but I read that you played tennis against Monica Sellers. How, how's, how's that deal? I did. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, my older, my, my sister's only a year and a half older than me, but when she was uh, a senior in high school, uh, this young tennis pro and her started going out on dates. So 
uh, when I was in high school, uh, I got to play a lot of tennis uh, with this guy that my sister was dating, and he was a tennis pro, young, you know, young aspiring tennis pro. So that was really cool, just to just to be able to hit balls with a pro and, and get some tips from him. And uh, in in college, right dead outside our uh, apartment window was the tennis courts. So and it didn't matter if it was eleven o'clock at night. Uh, if the courts were open, we went out and played. So I, I seriously might have played more tennis in, in college than I did golf. Uh, anyway, uh, getting back to Monica Sellis, uh, I signed with IMG, I think, in 1990, uh, shortly after I won the Open. And uh, I, I was – I forget who I was with before that. But anyway, uh, Mark McCormick uh, asked us to stay with him uh, and Betsy uh, at their place in Isleworth. And Betsy Nagelson's a professional tennis player. And uh, sure enough, uh, she says, Monica's Celis is going to come and stay with us for a few days. Do you mind? I said, are you kidding me? That's awesome. And I finally got off the nerve to ask her to, to come hit with me. And uh, I spent 45 minutes hitting with Monica Celis. And uh, it was so much fun. And when you play tennis with, with, with great players, you know, it's not like when, you, when you're playing with your buddies or, or your wife or whoever, when, you know, the ball's coming back about 20 feet over the net. Uh, when you come, when you play with the pro, all you got to do is just stick your racket out and it's going to go back over the net. Uh, you don't have to take a big flailing swing at it. And uh, I really got in that groove and was playing good with her and she gave me some tips and uh, that, that was, that was easily my tennis highlight. Awesome. I, I've done some golf lessons with Sampras and I was hoping I could just stand yep. for one game and just have him serve at me and see if I could see it. See it or even hit it, but I doubt. You can't. Yeah, my, my sister's boyfriend, he says, okay, see if you can get a racket on this one and hit some one of those top spin, you know, curvers that would, would hit and bounce straight up in the air in the wrong direction. You, you look like a, it's like a, trying to get a serve back against a professional racquetball player, you know, over there bouncing around in the corner of the court. You can't even get a paddle on it. Uh, it, it just – and I watched, I'm a huge tennis fan. I watched a lot of the French Open, a lot of Wimbledon. And uh, how do these guys even get a racket on some of these 130-mile-an-hour serves blows me away. I know you're a 10-pin uh, bowling fan, too. One of our mutual friends now that we met, uh, he's a member at my golf club. You ended up hanging out with him. TJ, Tommy Jones. I, I yeah. Know a bowler growing up. What, what, yeah. What's your handicap as a bowler? Pretty yep. good. I, 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 again, in Nebraska, we had an eight lane bowling alley and my dad ran it. So uh, I'd, I'd go with him to the bowling alley, which is only open in the winter. So in the winter, you played basketball and bowled. And in the summer, you rode your bike, swam, and played golf, uh, basically. Uh, so I was already a pretty good bowler by the time I was 13. And uh, I, I think at my best, I probably averaged about 210 a game, uh, which isn't bad. What's that? That's like missing two or three pins at the most, isn't it? Well, right. That's, that's not really having any opens, you know, having two or three or four strikes in a row at some point uh, and, and, you know, having clean games. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good bowling for sure. Um, and I, I've befriended all these guys uh, just a mile from my house here in Jupiter. Uh, Back in uh, Jan uh, February, late January, February, they filmed like five bowling shows. And I had all the bowlers over, Tommy Jones, Norm Duke, E.J. Tackett, uh, Sean Rash, uh, Randy Peterson, the commentator, Hall of Famer, stayed with us. 
Uh, it, it was Bill O'Neill, you name it. All the guys were over at the house and uh, were having a cookout. And uh, I, I'm just a huge bowling fan and uh, don't bowl as much now as, as I'd like to, but uh, I'm going to, uh, Randy, Randy Peterson sent me six balls from storm that I haven't even gotten drilled up yet. So I've got, I've got plenty of, plenty of equipment, but I, I need to get back out and uh, hit the lanes. Yeah. We're going to get you to Holly tree and have a Tommy Jones, Bradley Hughes versus Kelkin, whoever you bring golf, All right. in, sounds... golf in the morning and bowling at night. Exactly. That sounds gonna... like a plan. I like it. I'm just going to rapid fire a few questions to finish. Uh, Starter off basic. Favorite U.S. course? Sand Hills in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. Yeah, I've heard that's good. I've got to get there. That's a bucket list it's, for me. It's amazing. Uh, in the U.K., which course? Royal Troon. And I would tell you that even if I uh, hadn't won the Open there. All right, and what about Australia? You've played a few different places there. I'm going to go with uh, Kingston Heath. Yeah, that's a great choice. Yeah. All right, best player you've ever played with for various reasons, game, mental, the whole deal? Uh, Tiger Woods in 2000. Uh, there was just no one that's ever played better, I don't think. Uh, and not to take anything away from Jack Nicklaus or, or, or all the other great players, but uh, when I, I played with two practice rounds with Tiger in 2000 at St. Andrews, and we started on two and quit after 17. So we basically played 32 holes and he made 19 birdies and 32 holes in the practice round. Uh, I, I think he just actually played safe and took it easy in the tournament only to shoot 19 under. He, he was playing that good. If there was ever a tournament that was over before it started, that, that, was, that, that was it. And you said it, you, lot, you watch a lot of golf. So which of the modern players you think has got the whole package to have the best career? Well, Phil Mickelson's always been my favorite player to watch because you never know what you're going to get or where he's going to hit it and how he's going to get out of it. Uh, today, you know, what Bryson does with his driver is amazing, but I think his wedge game is horrible. Uh, he should win more than he actually does. Uh, Justin Thomas is one of my favorites. I, I think he's – I just love his wedge game. His tempo and the way he swings his wedges is just – it's so connected and just, and just tight in. Uh, it just never looks like he's going to hit a bad wedge. Uh, you know, and of course, John Rahm right now, I think, uh, man, he's got it all going. He hits it great. He drives it great. He puts it great. Uh, but there's, it, it's, it's, it's a great time for golf. There's a ton of great players out there. And, uh, but th those guys I just mentioned, I think are right at the top. All right. And if you're commissioner for a day, what would you do? What could you change? What would you like to make better or alter? I'd somehow try to speed the guys up and, and I don't know if that's by, you know, just finding the crap out of them, but I, I do think slow play is an issue. Uh, I know you've always been a fast player. I've always been a fast player and it's just uh, some of these rounds that take as long as they play, I think is just ridiculous. Love it. <laughs> All right. So you've been a pro now for 40 years. What's Kelk 15 years from now? What's he doing? <laughs> He's uh He's going out to uh, probably to Cuesta Country Club and hanging out with Russ Cochran, who will be about 78 at the time, and <laughs> having a little breakfast and, 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 and a few laughs and buttoning around out there, just having fun playing golf and still enjoying the game. Awesome. Hopefully I'll get to see you in that time. I hope I so. Loved it. Thanks for being a part of Bradley Hughes' podcast. 
hope your back improves and you get out there and take it by storm at the end of the season. Thanks, Bradley. Appreciate it. Anytime. Enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.